artist in Ypsilanti, Michigan, who wrote a book. It's a fun little book. I wouldn't recommend reading it. But it's called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. And what this psychologist was working on was um, helping people who had entered into what we would call delusions. In particular, he called them messianic syndrome. People who, because of their mental disease, thought that they were Christ. It's not common. I wouldn't say it's not like you walk out on the streets and you find a ton of people like that. Um, but if you go to the mental hospital, you're going to find it. Years ago, when our, our family had somebody from uh, within our kind of extended family that was in the hospital, my grandmother thought it was a good thing to go up and visit, and so she took me with her, and we went up and visited, and I got away from her one time, kind of making my way down the hallway. All 12-year-old boys do that. And I started going up to people and said, hi, my name is Mark, and one guy introduced himself, and he said, I'm Jesus Christ. And I was like, Whoa. The Bible said this kind of thing can happen. I thought it was pretty cool. So we talked. I determined pretty quickly in my investigative manner that he wasn't Jesus. <laughs> I was confirmed in that when I went further down the hall to another rest area. And I went up and I introduced myself. Hi, my name is Mark. And the, another guy said, well, I'm Jesus Christ. And it's like, whoa, reincarnation. You're just down there. When... Milton was working with these folks. He tried to get them out of this delusion and everything he tried didn't work. And finally he thought to himself, I wonder what would happen if we put ourselves all together in the same room over a regular period of time. So he did. He brought them together and they were just having discussions and they each were professing to be Christ and everything was fine until finally one day when an individual said, I am Christ. And Milton asked him, how do you know? And the young man said, God told me so. And one of the other guys said, I did not. And Milton, in his brilliance, and this is kind of the nature of the book, is he discovered that if you want to remove a delusion, bring them all together, and they have a way of self-correction. Now, if you walk out on the streets, you go to the mall, or you go anywhere, you're not going to find a ton of people, unless you go to San Francisco, who say, I'm Jesus Christ. What you are going to find is a huge percentage of people in our country that have an inflated view of themselves and every day try and add to that. They find ways when you first meet them to introduce themselves, tell you what they do for a living, how much maybe they even make and how important they are to their company and the reason why they got such an insanely large Christmas bonus, all of that, and they can do that in five minutes. Why? Because our culture has raised a, a, a pattern, a culture where we have to, if you will, inflate ourselves so that we can impress each other. It really, I think, is in some ways 
I would suggest, a connection to a messianic syndrome. It's really not all that far apart, honestly, that we, in our insecurity, have to present ourselves in a way that you think better of me. I'm not comfortable in my own skin, so I have to tell you what I know, show you what I did, impress you with who I am, or tell you how much I have in my bank. Somehow, I need you to think better of me. And it's not so much for your sake, it's really actually for mine. That's what the delusion is. And maybe that's what makes John such a stark difference in his culture. Because to be honest with you, his culture is exactly like ours. Not one really significant difference. John comes along. And he's preaching. And he's got all kinds of people coming to him. And somewhere in the crowd, it begins to murmur. Now understand, they haven't had a prophet in 400 years. It's been a long time since they had somebody speaking the word of God. And so he's out there, dressed a little weird. His diet's strange. Probably smelled a little funny. But the fact is, is he was somebody that was compelling. And so somebody whispered, I wonder if he is the promised Messiah. So they came to him. That's the text where we're at. Now this was John's testimony. When the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. What was he doing? He was responding to a question. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the promised one? Are you the chosen one? Are you the one sent from God? Nope, I'm not. Well, then are you Elijah? It was prophesied that Elijah would come back. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet, the one that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18? Are you that one? No, 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 no. And naturally, the the next response, and you can just see the frustration of the Levites or the the Jewish leaders. Well, then who are you? Because all we know is you got a ton of people following you. And you speak as someone who hasn't spoken in 400 years. Well, I'm the voice. Not the one that's on the TV. I'm the voice. In a culture that wants to make celebrities, even messianic celebrities, John provides for us a great example of someone who knows how to be comfortable in his own skin. And his premise is this, my friends, when you know who he is, you'll be comfortable in who you are. But until that, you're forever going to be seeking to inflate your own self-aggrandizement before others. You will. But if you want to be comfortable in your own skin, John says you have to learn to serve the Lord with humility and boldness not mirroring our culture. Our culture loves celebrities. Our culture loves important people. Our culture loves people who produce. Our culture loves individuals who validate their significance, who tells everybody through a text, through Facebook, through Instagram, doesn't matter how utterly important you are. John comes along and he says, guys, in answer to your question, who am I? 
Candidly, I'm merely a voice. I'm a voice, he says in verse 23. John replied in the words of Isaiah, the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. Now, this is not a small thing. I think John could have amassed the biggest crowd in the world. For 400 years, they hadn't received a prophet's words, and John came along. But he was beyond that. He he was a man that the scripture says had the power of the Holy Spirit on him from the womb. He was a man who, when he was born, people knew something unique about this guy. He took this Nazarite vow, of which it meant that he would never cut his hair. I don't know how long your hair gets if you never cut it, but it's longer than mine. And not only that, but he had a really kind of strange diet, and he was out in the wilderness. He dressed differently. I'm just guessing, but my sense is, is John's kind of the guy? That you probably smelled him before you saw him. And when he preached, there was something about him, spirit endowed might be the term that they would use. It's almost like he's from God, and he was. He could have written a book on self-discipline. He could have written a book, after all, in that 400-year period, we resurrected or brought to life the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two religious sects that were known for their intense discipline. And along comes John, and I guarantee you, he could have been the lead of that and said, you guys want to see discipline, I'll show you discipline. But he didn't. He responds by telling them, I'm the voice. And if you understand who he is, then you'll understand why I'm comfortable being the voice. If you understand his greatness, then you will become comfortable in your own skin just like John was. But friends, we live in that culture. It's not just at the mental hospital. It's at your high school. It's at your college. We preach it. We believe it, that you got to become somebody, that you have to distinguish yourself, that you have to make sure everyone knows how utterly critical you are to the universe succeeding. We have to know how big your ministry is. We have to know how big your church is. We have to know how significant your grades are. We have to know what your IQ is. We find all kinds of ways to lace this. Why? Because that's our culture. We have a culture just like John did. It's a messianic syndrome. And it's not just in a mental hospital. To be quite honest with you, we're a lot closer to them when we realize They think they're Jesus Christ. We just want to be. I had a friend who had graduated with from seminary. He was pastoring in Southern California. And during the Easter season at the Holiday Bowl, they always had a resurrection service. And so one year, they had called him and said, hey, would you speak at the, at the resurrection service? And he was thought about it and said, I'd be honored to. And they said, well... Um, where do you want us to send the helicopter to pick you up? And he was like, the what? 
the helicopter. We'll send it to your house. And he was a little embarrassed by that. And he, he says, well, to be quite honest with you, they were kind of relaying this through his assistant. And he, she said, they want to send you a helicopter. And he says, I, I don't have room in my front street for a helicopter. Sorry, thank you for the helicopter, but he can't have a helicopter come to his house. He didn't have enough room. Well, then we will send him a police escort. Pastor, would you like a police escort? What time are they coming? What time are you coming? 3 a.m. 3 a.m. No, I don't want a police escort at 3 a.m. If I got a bunch of police and sirens and all kinds of lights showing up in my house at 3 a.m., they're going to think I robbed something or something tragic happened. I don't need that kind. Uh-uh. Just tell them, I can find my way to the holiday bowl. I'll drive myself. He gets there and he, uh, he asks him, he said, what's up with the helicopter stuff? Why did, I, why did you want to send me a helicopter? And they said, well, last year's speaker demanded that we pick him up in a helicopter. Huh, okay. He was standing next to a guy who was dressed in jeans and a t-shirt. And he thought to himself, that's kind of cool. That guy's relating to teenagers and, you know, younger crowd. And he was kind of admiring him until five minutes before the service started, he put on a robe and made sure that my friend knew that that robe had over $10,000 worth of bling on it. We live in a culture. You go to school in a culture. You work in a culture that is a culture has, that has a messianic syndrome. We long for people to be great. To be quite honest with you, we long for you to be great. Why? Because if you're great and I know you, you just elevated my significance. If you're something significant, if you're a great author, if you are a great accomplishment, if you have a ton of money and I know you, we're partners, then you know what you've just done? You've changed my identity. And John says, if you know who he is, you have to become comfortable with serving the Lord with humility and boldness, not like our culture. How do you do that? John suggests in this text that you need to find your real identity in Christ. What is identity? It's what you think about yourself. It's how you identify yourself in relation to others. It's what you think about the core essence of who you are. It's how you define that term or that, that answer to the question of who are you. In our culture, if you're a great athlete, that's what you lead with. I'm an athlete at. I got a certain, you know, scholarship at, to play at. That's our identity. Why? Because that's what gets us accepted. That's what impresses people. I am a member of Mensa. I am, and you fill in the blank. I, I work at such and such. I'm a manager at such and such. There's all kinds of things that we utilize to define ourselves. That's our identity, but not for John. And frankly, not for the one who knows him. John unpacks three things about Christ that he wanted his audience and he wants you to know. Starts in verse 23 where he says, John replies in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Who is Jesus? The most important question that you need to wrestle with, he's Yahweh. There will be some people who will come to you at some point and say, Jesus, it never in the New Testament claims that Jesus is God. Oh, yes, it does. Right here in this verse. 
There's a score of others in Hebrews, but this, all you need is this one. John knew that. He was going back and he was taking Isaiah chapter 40 and he was talking about Yahweh, who is Jehovah, who is God the creator. And what John is saying is, if you know who this man is, I will tell you, he's who Isaiah spoke of in chapter 40. He's Yahweh, he's Jehovah, he's God the creator. It, it rocked their world because what John said in this moment is the one you're looking at is the God of the Old Testament. He's come in the flesh. That's him. And if you know who he is, you'll become comfortable with who you are. Not only is he Yahweh to come, but he's also superior. Now, some of the Pharisees who had sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, not Elijah or the prophet? John responds, I baptize with water, but among you stands one that you do not know. He's the one that comes after me. The thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to even untie. He'll go on to say, I baptize with water. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And what he's telling them is if you understand who Christ is, you will see a superiority. John is saying to me, I baptize with water. I baptize with a symbol. I baptize with water that does nothing but roll off of you and symbolizes what? The cleansing that God brings to you. Oh, but when Christ comes, he baptizes with what? The Holy Spirit. It's not a symbol, it's a reality. He brings the Holy Spirit that enters into your life, that transforms you, that seals you, that imparts the spiritual gift to you, that creates a new heart in you, that enables you to have your name written into the Lamb's book of life. John was looking at these guys. You want to call me the Christ? You don't have any clue I can merely take a person under the water. Jesus infuses the Holy Spirit into you, which creates a new heart and saves you and forgives you and cleanses you and removes sin and the wrath of God from you. I can give you a bath, if you will, is what he's saying. He can do heart surgery. He can change the very nature of your soul. Not only is he Yahweh and he's superior, John goes on to say in verse 30, this is the one I meant when I said, I'm a man, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was actually before me. I myself did not know him. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Somebody in the crowd probably was saying, John, wait, me, we know. You were born before Jesus. You were born six months prior to Jesus. What do you mean that he comes before you? Well, the reality is if you understand who Jesus is, you will understand that long before I existed, Long before I was even a thought in Elizabeth's womb. Jesus, who is eternal God, who has existed before the foundations of the world, he was alive. 
What is his point? When you understand who Jesus is, then you will understand it's okay to simply see yourself as a voice. Because your identity as a Christian is not wrapped up in what you do, who you know. It's not wrapped up in what you produce. It is singularly touched and founded upon who is your God. He is the one who created the heavens and the earth. He is the one who doesn't just wash you, but gives you a new heart. He is the one that didn't just come before you. He is the God who has eternally existed in all time. And when you know who he is, you become comfortable with who you are. But listen carefully. If you don't know who he is, you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to inflate yourself. If you don't know who Christ is, if you don't become impressed with him, if you don't understand what John understood, every relationship you're going to be in is going to be a relationship that you will use to somehow inflate your importance. Every presentation you make will be somehow to add to your vita so people will know how impressive you are. Every book you write will be an evidence of how significant your mind is. And all of it will be so that you can elevate yourself, so that people will think something very significant of who you are not for John John who are you I'm a voice God doesn't make garbage it's not that's not what he's saying he says I'm a voice I find my identity in relationship to the one who is superior to me who came before me who is God and if you don't find your identity in that God you better have gone to a really impressive university because you're going to have a lot of impressing to do. You better run an unbelievable business. You better make a lot of money. You better be really good looking because you're going to sequester yourself to the life of demanding flattery so that you can think well of yourself because we have a culture the borderlines on messianic syndrome. We long for people to impress us. Why? Because if you're significant and I know you, you've just improved my identity. Find your real identity in Christ, he says, and then put your whole trust in who Jesus is. Put all of your trust in him. Verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, hey, look, I think he shouted this, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and every Jew froze. Because that line was pregnant with meaning. The lamb who would die for the world? I think if you went out and took a poll, they tell us that over 90% of people believe in God. I think it's probably higher than that. I don't think there's that many atheists in the world. I really don't. 
But if you were to go out and to ask people, said, what do you think of Jesus? I think probably 90 some percent, 95, 97% would have a favorable view of Jesus. They would. Do they believe that there was a person by the name of Jesus Christ that lived? I think virtually almost 100% of people would say, yep, I have no reason to doubt that. Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Jesus Christ. Yep, they believe that. If you ask them, was he a great example of how to live? I think 90 some percent, 97, 98% of people would say, absolutely. He dignified women in ways that other people didn't do, especially for his era. He, he loved the poor. He was a person of the people. He was forever undoing religious bigots and people like that. They love him. But they would stop when you would ask, who do you think he is? They might not use this phrase, but they would probably come up with this meaning and they would say, I think at the end of the day, Jesus is a marvelous example of which you should pattern your life after. Yep. You would hardly find anyone out there that would fight you on that. He's a great example, and he is. He's a marvelous example, a humanitarian. A, he dignified people. He cared for the poor. He, he elevated people. He, man, he, people that had been discarded by a culture, he, he just brought them in and made them feel welcome. People that got rejected by everybody. Jesus was like, whoa, I like him. Great example. But if you merely leave him at, at an example then you open yourself up to the reality that there's probably other great examples that will become a peer to Jesus. And in this one line, John takes the example model away from you. Jesus is not simply an example. He's a sacrifice. And he's a sacrifice that has meaning. Why? It's because of who he was. He was God, who was superior, who was eternal. And because of that, he is the lamb that will be sacrificed. He's no longer an example. Jesus is not merely an example. He's a sacrifice. An example gives me multiple options. A sacrifice makes him essential. An example is a person that I can model my life after. A sacrifice is a payment on a debt that I have. He died. And the reason it's so important to understand who he is is because there's a lot of people who die. In fact, probably at some point, everyone in this room is gonna die. But if your life is merely a human, then your death is simply going to produce grief in those who loved you. His produced life. Because he was more than an example, he was a sacrifice. And he was a sacrifice, the scripture says, for the world. And this is, I think, where the Jews had their second major meltdown. Not only had they had no idea, no conception at all, that their Messiah would die, but they had no inclination that their Messiah was going to be for anyone other than the Jews. 
God was going to send the Messiah, the chosen one, what? To redeem the Jews, to save the Jews, to overcome the Romans, to free God's people. And then along comes John and he said, behold, the lamb that is going to be sacrificed and he's going to take away the sins of the world. The world? Yeah. Every person that you've been raised to hate, God loves. Every nation that has abused you and you want overthrown, God loves. The nations that you're maybe communicated with every day to hate like Iran and Yemen and other, God loves. And the nations that we regularly bring up to despise like Russia, God loves. He died for them. And he has no intention of repenting. John says, I want you to put your whole trust in this Jesus. He's not an example of which you get to follow. He's a sacrifice of which you must trust. Why? Because if you know who he is, you'll become comfortable with who you are. You're not just a voice, but you're a sinner who needs to have your sins dealt with. John was writing in his other letter, the first John, and he makes this statement. He is the, he's speaking of Jesus. He says, he is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What is propitiation? It simply means the removal of death and wrath. And when you know who Jesus is, you're gonna be okay with seeing yourself as a sinner, not in need of an example, but in need of a savior, in need of a sacrifice. And that's where our culture says no. Our culture wants you to be your own solution. We say it every day. Our culture wants you to be more than a voice. Our culture wants you to be a miracle. John says, if you understand who Jesus is, you'll have no problem becoming comfortable with who you are. There was a number of years ago, a couple of movies that came out. The first one was Extraordinary Measures. Extraordinary Measures had a tagline, don't hope for a miracle, make one. And if you were to come out of the New York subway, there were two posters that existed when these two movies came out. And on extraordinary measures, it said, don't, if you will, pray for a miracle, make a miracle happen. Next to it was another movie that came out, The Book of Eli. Don't take your kids to it. In fact, don't go to it if you, you know, have a squeamish stomach. But it's the gospel. Say, Book of Eli is the gospel? Yeah, it is. The tagline, deliver us. One of those movies is our culture. It's the one you were raised in. Be your miracle. Have your best day. Make it a great day. It's all up to you. We put that stuff as taglines on phones when people call us and they say, make it a great day. That's fine. 
My mom was a phenomenal example of a person who learned how to forgive. But she couldn't save me. My wife is an off-the-charts model of a patient daughter-in-law who loves with her whole heart. But let me tell you what, as much as I love her, she can't save you. I don't need a miracle that I make. Why? Because I can't make one significant enough. I don't have the power to make a miracle happen that saves me. And if I understand who Christ is, that he is God who came in the flesh, who brings a superior baptism, not just the washing of my body, but the transformation of my heart. And the one who has come after me has actually come before me. He's eternal. then the message of the book of Eli is actually the gospel. Deliver us. Because we're to the point of brokenness that we can't save our own selves. We can't create our own miracle. We need something outside of us. And that's what John understood. When you know who Jesus is, you will be comfortable with who you are and what you need to do. You don't need to create your own miracle. You don't have that capacity. What you need to do is to understand you're a sinner and you need a savior. You're a sinner who needs God in the flesh. And you and I are just called, wonderfully called to messengers of that, just like John. We're called to prepare the way. We're called to share the good news. We don't have the burden of trying to elevate ourselves. We don't have the, the passion to somehow make other people think well of us. We have this assignment. I want you to know my savior. You see, if you're a neighbor to a person and your passion is that your neighbor think well of you, not only are you going to inflate yourself, but you're going to steal from the very person you say that you love the message that they need a savior. And if you spend your time trying to make sure that your neighbor and maybe even all the people that you work with think highly of you and, and how important you are to the company, then what you're really doing is serving yourself and stealing from them the opportunity of knowing Christ. John could have been a rock star. He could have been the single greatest religious movement of his era. But he understood who Jesus was. And when you understand who Christ is, you'll be comfortable with who you are. You're a sinner, just like me. You don't need a good example. You need a savior. Let's pray.